This is the Simply Vanished podcast, produced by Trembling Leaf Media in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Josh Newville. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash simplyvanished. Start living a better life today. Some of the words of Pastor Cullen Curtis of the Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Maple Lake, Minnesota, speaking last Thursday, November 10th, 2022, at the annual service of remembrance for Josh Gimon. And we cannot help but wonder what shape Josh's life would have taken. After college graduation, he would have gone off to law school. Would his motivation and aspirations allow him to have a family? Or would he have thrown himself into politics? Maybe our politics would be different had Josh been able to run for president at 35. (laughs) But tonight we gather with the story unwritten and too many unknowns to truly ponder. Approximately 80 friends and family packed the pews for a service titled, as it has been for nearly 20 years, Keep Hope Alive. So that our hope is alive and does not disappoint us. This, then, is why we rely on our faith. And Josh knew the gift of faith and the love of God. He learned it here in this place. They prayed together. Support Brian, Lisa, all of Josh's family and friends, and all who remember Josh before you today. Hold us in your loving arms and grant us the comfort of knowing that nothing can separate us or Josh from your love. Lord, in your mercy. They sang hymns together. They shared some fond memories and laughter. I think Grandma helped him off there um, and let him get him a car to use and took his driver's license test in the tiny town of Rutherford Falls and passed his final color. As the service progressed, Justin Thole and I stood in the back left of the room, monitoring both our equipment and the audience. 
Among those in attendance included Detective Andrew Struford from the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, who you'll hear from in just a bit, Josh's mock trial coach, Olga, who you'll also hear from, a handful of Josh's high school friends, and in the front right sat Katie, Josh's ex-girlfriend from both college and high school. She appeared to be the only college friend of Josh's in attendance. After a service that lasted approximately one hour, everyone headed out into the parking lot where they then, together, released glow-in-the-dark biodegradable balloons. While family and friends socialized, I asked investigator Struford what's standing in the way at this point of Josh's case being solved. I think what has stood in the way historically, um, we had a lot of uh, media coverage at the front end. We had a lot of uh, investigative work done, and there has been continued investigative work done in this case since the very beginning. But truly, I think it's going to take the public's help and that there's somebody out there that knows something that could be useful to to the case, even if it's something um, so minor and insignificant. What a lot of people don't realize is those little things will add up to much more, and they're not quite sure of the gravity of what they might know until they they let someone like our office know, and we're able to put together the pieces, and uh, then we can put together the whole story. My biggest hope uh, from the podcast and doing uh, Unsolved Mysteries and having them air the story is just hopefully we can get some more community support and people who are aware of, uh, of really anything that could be useful to the case will contact us and give them that, give us that information, and hopefully that will help us continue on with what we need to do. Having recently learned that investigators hadn't even interviewed all of Josh's roommates until 2010, eight years after his disappearance, I asked investigators Truford whether they intend on interviewing or re-interviewing people at this point, especially in light of all of the new information. Yeah, you know, from the very beginning, there has been a lot of interviews done on this case. And there's a lot of people close to this case and close to the family and friends. And uh, we, are, we are definitely taking a look at that and uh, reapproaching some of those people to see if there's anything else that they have thought of over the years or anything else they've forgotten. That's just a, a pretty standard technique, um, you know, for cold case investigations or investigations that have gone on for quite some time. The investigator also pulled aside Josh's mom and dad and showed them an age-progressed photo that the department plans on releasing soon. Prior to the service, I sat down with Josh's dad, Brian, and reflected on 20 years. Oh, you just wonder what he'd been doing at this point in time in his life. You know, I know he would have been a lawyer. That was a no-brainer. And how, but it would have been interesting to see how his political career would be moving. Maybe he'd be married with kids also. Who knows, you know? Brian also has hope that Josh is still alive and that there's something that people can do about it. Well, there's absolutely no evidence he's dead. There's no evidence of a murder. There's been no body. Therefore, he's alive until proven different. And anybody out in Washington State, Idaho... Montana, those are areas of interest as of late, and these areas of interest change. But right now, that's where people could keep an eye open. Yep, 20 years, though. Who'd have ever thought the nightmare continues, and so does the cover-up. What do you think needs to happen at this point to have a case? We need to get somebody else in here looking at the case, not Stearns County 
who's controlled by St. John's. I asked Brian to explain what he meant by Stearns County being controlled by St. John's, and he explained that in his view, St. John's, its power, its influence, its money in the local community is so strong that it basically pulls the levers at the Stearns County Sheriff's Department. Well, they had two choices to make. They could have helped with the investigation or they could have hindered it. Well, I guess they chose to hinder by uh, everything that's been done. So it, they, they made their priorities real clear. Hour one, day one, he's in the lake, end of story. Well, that told you you were getting no help from them. To me, that says somebody there's involved. I mean, let's face it, they just got done covering up all the pedophiles. And if someone was involved with this from their campus, are you telling me how stupid are you to believe that they ain't going to cover it up? And let's see, Sanders' kids went there, and you can go down the list. The county attorney's husband works there. I mean, let's see. But there's no conflict of interest with anything. And nothing has changed in 20 years. As I talked further with Brian, it became clear that his frustration, anger, dismay, that that distrust and all that emotion that you can hear in his voice when he talks about St. John's University and the people who work there, it's based on a couple of different things, generally. The first is conduct that he sees them engaging in over the years to obstruct the investigation into his son's disappearance. For example, he talks about Trident Foundation. You remember that elite dive team that came in from Colorado that searched all of the bodies of water on campus and ultimately cleared them, telling investigators to consider taking their investigation in a different direction. Brian says he wanted that to happen sooner, but St. John's stood in the way because they didn't want the dive team on campus prior to graduation. We found out that it was the school after going to the two county commissioner meetings, it's like, why don't you want the, the best people in the country to come here and find the body or not find the body? Well, it, we found out it was St. John's didn't want them there until school was out. So who's running the investigation? At that point, Stearns County isn't. He has other examples, but the second thing that he complains about is the stuff that St. John's didn't do, that they haven't done in nearly two decades to ensure that Josh's case remains not only in the public spotlight, but in the minds of those who attend St. John's University and those who work there. They've done nothing as far as I'm concerned to help find Josh. They've hindered. They could have helped with all their money and power. There could have been all kinds of resources being used, but nope. <laughs> and here Brian is not alone. Although Stearns County will sing St. John's praises and talk about how incredibly cooperative they've been over the years in their investigation, people who went to school with Josh, people who go to school at St. John's today, faculty members and staff members who've worked there in the intervening 20 years, have all complained about St. John's silence when it comes to Josh Gimon. In May of this year, prior to the podcast launching, I spent a couple of nights at bars in St. Joseph, Minnesota, the town that houses both St. John's and St. Ben's. And I asked over 50 students, current and former, if they knew about Josh Gimon. Of them, five knew who Josh was. So I grew up in Cold Spring. Um, my parents were Benny's and John, a Benny and a Johnny. They graduated in 91. 
so they did the whole mailing letters for Jacob Wetterling. Um, then they graduated, and the Josh thing happened. Do you remember Josh? It, honestly, I didn't know about it, which is super weird. I didn't know about it until I was in college, which is kind of absurd, right? To grow up in this, I was born in St. Cloud. I grew up in Cold Spring my entire life. Sadly, she only learned about Josh's case because Michael Hemish, who is responsible for PR at St. John's University, bragged about handling the disappearance in a PR class. He like, told us facts about it and like how he handled it from a PR perspective and some like hurdles he had to take and some roadblocks and stuff, but it wasn't anything, like it was just how he dealt with it. It wasn't anything groundbreaking to the, you know, to the case or anything like that, so. What did, what did, what did he say about how he handled it? Um, he said it was a lot of like crisis intervention and like Josh's dad had a lot going on at the time and was visiting campus. And Aside from complaining about Brian over the years, St. John's has had very little to say publicly about Josh or his case. I was unable to get the abbot, John Clausen, who was installed as abbot in December of 2000, to speak about this case, nor Michael Connolly, the current dean of students, nor Jason Laker, the dean of students at the time of Josh's disappearance, nor Michael Hemish, the director of communications at the time of Josh's disappearance, and who apparently is still director of communications to this day, nor... Sean Viersba, who was and is the director of St. John's Life Safety. First new message received today at 8.31 a.m. Hi, Josh. This is Sean Viersba. I'm returning your phone call um, in regards to a podcast that you're doing. Um, I, I just want to let you know that I have to decline. Um, this, this is an active investigation and um, so I'm going to refer you back to Lieutenant Weiss or, or the Sturms County Sheriff's Office. Sorry about that. I hope you're having a good day. Thank you. Bye. That's what they've been saying for 20 years. Josh's mom, Lisa. Because that's what they're, that's their, that's the same sentence they say, and that stops everybody from having to all these people from having to answer any questions whatsoever. And it's a sad deal because, you know, who knows? You know, who knows? They had some weird-ass monks cruising around on bicycles. And stuff, <coughs> you know, the, the days that we were all on campus and a major interest in, overly interested. Like Brian, Lisa has concerns about a number of the monks at St. John's University and their potential involvement in Josh's disappearance. Although detectives repeatedly say that they are unable to rule out any potential suspect in Josh's disappearance, they sing a different tune when it comes to St. John's University. Just last week, Sheriff Soika gave an interview to a Carol Evan news reporter in which he said that there is no credible evidence that could connect Josh's disappearance to the St. John's monk abuse scandal. What do you think he's going to say? <laughs> it's interesting. He also said that, you know, that he couldn't rule anyone out. Do you think that that he's already ruled out St. John's? I think he's been told you're ruling us out. <laughs> That's how that went. He didn't think. He's told what to do. That's clearly obvious at this point in the game after 20 years that they've done nothing but put roadblocks up. And then 
this PR stunt to putting this photos out there right before the unsolved mystery joke aired. <laughs> it's like, really? Brian is referring to the unsolved mysteries episode about Josh's case that was released on Netflix just a few weeks ago. Although the episode had long been anticipated, there were a couple of things that he did not expect. First, he was taken aback at the fact that detectives gave new information to the television show that they had never before told the family, specifically about the Pontiac Sunfire. Second, he's angry because he felt that Lieutenant Vic Weiss made it seem like the information about Josh chatting in online chat rooms, and specifically the photos of many of the men that Josh was chatting with, and the fact that Josh was presenting as though he was a woman in some of these chat rooms, that Lieutenant Weiss made it seem like that was new information that they found in 2008. In actuality, detectives were aware of that information and had many of those photos as late as spring of 2003. And as it turns out, Brian is right. In the spring of 2003, April 13, 2003 to be exact, a reporter named Dave Unzi wrote an article in the St. Cloud Times titled, For Gimon's Dad, Search is Grim, Lonely. In the page-and-a-half article, Unzi touches on a number of topics related to Josh's disappearance, including the fact that on Josh's computer were pictures of people that he chatted with, the fact that he did chat in online chat rooms, and that at times he presented as though he was a woman. This was not new information. Not in 2020, not in 2008. So for Brian, the fact that it was presented in the episode by Lieutenant Weiss as though it was new information he felt that the entire thing was a deflection, a setup, a distraction from the other potential explanations in Josh's disappearance, namely the monk abuse scandal. As I told you, I also ran into Josh's mock trial coach, Olga, at the service. She was one of the last people to see Josh in the weeks prior to his disappearance, having spent the weekend with him at McAllister for a mock trial tournament the weekend before his disappearance. I sat down with her for an extensive interview, parts of which I will share with you after this word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Please note that BetterHelp Therapy Online is not a crisis line. If you or a loved one are experiencing a mental health emergency, consider dialing 988 in the United States. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com dot com slash simply vanished start living a better life today i know that it can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem solving mode when faced with challenges in life instead of becoming consumed by the problems that we face but when you learn how to find your own solutions there's really no better feeling and a therapist can help you become a better problem solver making it far easier to accomplish your goals no matter how big or small Regardless of our personalities, our backgrounds, and life experiences, we can all use help solving problems, especially when those problems relate to our own well-being. You know, personally, my instinct is to put my own health, both mental and physical, on the back burner while dealing with other problems in life. Truth be told, I've done too much of that these past few years. Therapy is a healthy and surefire way to prevent that from happening for too long. Just like scheduling workouts and physical therapy sessions can help us ensure that our bodies get the physical training and treatment that they need, schedule therapy sessions can help us ensure that we're treating our emotional injuries and exercising our mental health skills. Everyone deserves to feel their best. And with BetterHelp, it's easier to get started. 
They provide all of the benefits of in-person therapy, plus it's more convenient, more accessible, and more affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, hey, you can easily switch to a new one at any time. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash simplyvanished. That's betterhelp.com slash simplyvanished. Olga Zenteno started coaching the mock trial team at St. John's University in the year 2000. Josh was on the team, but I, um, in his first year there, he wasn't co-captain yet. Um, he, I remember he was a witness, um, but he was much more quiet, you know, than, um, let's say, Nick, uh, who was the, was the force in getting the whole mock trial team going at St. John's St. Ben's. So anyway, um, but then... Um, in that year, um, 02, um, when Josh went missing, he was co-captain and we had a very good tournament at McAllister um, in that weekend before um, he disappeared. Olga speaks in glowing language when she talks about Josh and Nick and the other mock trial team members that she worked with in her time at St. John's. They were um, motivated to... Um, to be successful on the team and also you could tell that they um, had drive all of them and they were inspired i remember they um i think they had a few good men memorized you know the courtroom scenes they were really um uh they had a vocation to be attorneys and so yeah those are those are good memories and when you're with people like that um it's kind of it inspires you you know to see that kind of enthusiasm because um, whatever in in real world, it's things are a little bit different, you know. So tell me about the relationship uh, between Josh and Nick, and between Josh and Katie, and between you know Nick and Katie. You know, yeah. Uh, as you observed it, right? I mean, you, you saw them yeah. at mock trial tournaments, which could be emotional experiences. I mean, everyone who's done mock trial describes it as a very intense effort. It's 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 a demanding task both mentally in terms of the the work that you need to do in terms of understanding the legal aspects of the case but also the roles that you're portraying you know in, in sometimes acting as a witness sometimes um, you know switching sides and and going from you know one side of the the lawyer uh, you know sort of work to the other um, so yeah so that brings out personalities right and then you you kind of win together or you lose together and all of that brings out personalities even more and you travel together and that brings out personalities and so i'm curious like as someone who got to go along you know this journey with them what did you experience in terms of or what did you observe in terms of those relationships so i really felt that um you know because i i worked full-time and i only saw them um in, the, in their evening practices um and then uh, and then through the tournaments Again, I mean, Nick is, um, and Josh, I mean, they're powerhouse, very dedicated attorneys and really um, strategic. Um, and, and so they did all of the coaching of the, you know, witnesses and, um, 
Um, I remember their lists of questions. They were just always pre prepared. Um, they had thought things through. Then when things came up in tournament, um, that was fun. We would discuss it, and then um, they were they were just um, finding ways to to react and um, and and what to do because a lot of times you know because you, because you get a case um, a lot of the teams will have um, kind of the same strategy or uh, take on a witness sh shall we say and so then it really matters as you know. Um, how prepared you are, and and that was where. So Josh and Nick were always prepared. Oh, absolutely! Like I remember um, taking, because I, you know, I would take notes, watching them, and like maybe during the eight hours on Saturday, <laughs> um, if I doodled or I don't know, wrote a grocery list on the side, just something on the side of the paper, um, like Nick would circle that. <laughs> I mean, they were serious about about this and so I um, it was easy t to match that and so and again I thought they were so m mature and I can't um, remember if it was that tournament that they told me but it was just like I got um, they, they all picked me up and I got in the car and then they were like oh uh, Olga like um, Josh and Katie broke up and you know they're in the same vehicle and they're like but it's okay it's, you know they're friends now and it just seemed like a mature way to go. It's like better than 99.9% of the cases of, of people breaking up that I've seen in court, shall we say. I mean, it was incredibly um, mature and there seemed to be sort of like a tension that had been lifted, you know. Um, Tell me about that. Attention lifted. What do you, what do you mean um, there? I don't know, like um, if during the um, previous year, if, you know, Josh and Katie were, were dating and Katie was a witness and, um, she was always really good also to like, it's, it's almost like a job, you know, being professional, being in a role, being with the witnesses. She, she never really like impinged on his, like, let's say strategy sessions with Nick. It was just, um, you know, we we're all more than happy to let them do that because that, that was what they wanted to do. And so, um, you know, witnesses, there's a sort of like acting <laughs> component a little bit. And so they worked that out with the other witnesses, kind of. And um, I, I'm remembering a story that um, somebody who was a witness, I believe, told me um, in those days that after um, when we were at St. John's and Josh was missing, he said, you know, when he had first started mock trial, this was one of the younger students, he um, was kind of nervous and, you know, like, what, what you know, uh, just nervous about um, the whole thing. And Josh told him that when Josh was a witness in his first year, he got on the stand and just completely blanked out on his lines, like didn't remember anything of what, what he was supposed to say. And I had forgotten about that, but then I did remember that. <laughs> and, you know, eventually you, you kind of stumble back. And um, by telling this student that story, it was so helpful. And if you, you know, a sign of leadership, that's what leaders do is they, they try to make you better, even if, you know, like they have to share a story mm -hmm. like that. 
they lead, they lead by example. And so he really connected with students that way. And I would say with Nick, um, Nick was, Nick is very, um, I mean, that pressure and drive that he put on himself, you know? So I mean, like, I can't imagine something like that happening to Nick in the first place because he would probably have, you know, backup upon backup and backup of um, uh, preparation. But there was but, a tension at some point that you, that developed, it sounds like, even oh, though... Oh, between Katie and Josh? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, because we all stayed in a hotel. And I, I remember one tournament in Iowa, maybe... Um, they had had an argument. I, I do remember that. And all of us ended up going to dinner and Josh and a few of the other guys went somewhere else. And that's what I meant to say. And it wasn't anything. Um, Katie and Josh had an argument? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Even as careful as they were to uh, be professional about mock trial, something, you know, you could tell something was kind of boiling up or uh, but that was um months before the the november uh tournament at McAllister. do you think it was in the same school year though yeah it must have been yep okay it's interesting um one of the things that nick told me is that he observed that when josh and katie broke up that for him it almost seemed like there had been a weight lifted off of josh's shoulders yeah, and, and by extension, let's say all of us, because it's kind of like kids, right? You're kind of like kids, and if there's a if, if your parents are fighting, they're <laughs> mm -hmm. you 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 know when, yeah. So, have you seen the unsolved mysteries episode? That I have. Okay, um, one of the things that that I found interesting on the show is that uh, the show kind of zeroed in on Katie saying that Nick left Josh's place around 1.30 or so. and or, or, or left her place, you mean? I'm sorry. Or, yeah. Thank you. That, yeah, yeah. that Nick, right. So one of the things the show said is that Nick left, or that Katie thought that Nick left her place around 1.30. Um, but as, as you know, and as we've talked about on the podcast, the, you know, Nick didn't badge into his dorm room that night until about 2.42 a.m. Yep it's a seven minute drive away. So there's no reason that, you know, uh, there's unaccounted for time in theory. Uh, now, the thing I should point out is we don't know what, whether her estimate is accurate or not, right? I mean, well, someone leaves your it. home late at night. And so there's been a lot of attention paid to Nick and Katie, um, and in particular Nick after the Unsolved Mysteries episode. And in fact, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is if you know anything about um, why Nick declined to take a polygraph, because I think that's, a, that's one thing that people have jumped, grabbed to and said, hey, this seems yep. to suggest that, you know, that Nick was lying. And, and I don't know that that's true. I, 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 I'm not ruling it out. Like, I'm not trying to convince anyone that, you know, Nick did or didn't do anything. I just think we need to be a bit careful about some of the, the chatter I've seen online since this, this episode has come out. And I just want to kind of try to contextualize it the best I can. And you, you were close to these guys. Yeah. Do you have any idea why Nick would have would have declined to take the polygraph, for example? Yeah. I seem to recall a phone call, and Nick was like, "They want me to take a polygraph." So this is to you. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm like downtown at the courthouse, and I had like one friend who was an attorney, um, did family law, but she had been a public defender. So I called her up. So Nick calls you up. You're working as a law clerk at the courthouse yep. for a judge. He gets asks for your opinion on the polygraph. Yeah, and you, I said, and I said, I don't know enough because I'm a 
lowly law clerk, but let me call my friend. Who was a criminal defense attorney. Had been a public defender. She, who was a practicing trial court family law attorney at that time. And she, and, is, now, and she says what? She said, Olga, I've always thought, she said, even when I was public defender, why help the police do their, <laughs> you know, she viewed it as, as that, like, you know, why, why do that? And probably. And, and so you pass this information along to pass, Nick. Pass it on to Nick. My concern for Nick, having known Nick um, and Josh, I mean, I just mentioned the drive and pressure that they put on themselves. Like it was. Um, so I admired the drive and, you know, I felt like Nick was high strung. And so I worried for him with a group of, um, policemen who had completely the wrong idea of him. So, um, I, you know, I just passed that information on to Nick and I, I'm sure he consulted or with other people. Anything that hasn't been talked about on the podcast, on Unsolved Mysteries and the media, that you think the public needs to know about Josh or any of you know the folks connected to his case? Well, um, the Josh told me also that he was working um, researching the 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 monk's sex abuse case that that had come to light. Um, I believe during those times, and he asked me specifically, um, do if I knew about the behind the Pine Curtain website, which I did not. I mean, this was O2, didn't have a cell phone. Uh, this is, the internet was was in its infancy, but you know, um, Josh, you know, I, I would imagine all college students were, were on the, you know, exploring everything that they could to, to the max. I mean, I certainly would have loved to, but I had to work, you know, I worked from eight to five. Um, so. I had not been on the Behind the Pine Curtain website. And I remember Josh saying, you know, b- because Josh is self-funded, uh, Josh is not from a wealthy family, and he was concerned about, like, the, the loans that he was paying, or, you know, the money he's paying for St. John's, and if it's, they're going to be taken down by this kind, this kind of, of lawsuit. You know, and I, I, don't think, I don't think Josh was Catholic anyway. He was, he's Lutheran, whereas Nick is Catholic. Um, and so, so it wasn't just his mom and his grandma that he that he complained to about the monk abuse scandal in the weeks and months. No, no. I mean, we did. He was um, researching. He like that the biography that um, you was read on your podcast. I was so grateful for that. I mean, I could feel, I could hear his, you know, his voice and how you see that kind of reasoning uh, that that he does and his approach to things. Um, it's not um, haphazard. It's not uh, accusatory. It's 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 very uh, careful, carefully done, and so. So you say he was researching. What what makes you believe that he was researching? Just the fact that he talked about the behind the pine curtain yeah. website. Yeah, and and how he had. Um, I, I I wish I'd asked him more questions about this. Like who who have you talked to? What's going on? I, I think we were more interested in like um, Anderson, like the the lawsuits attorney's approach to this, and what the next you know the process the civil procedure of the that the case would be taking and 
I think it was coming up in the courts, like, you know, wh where I worked. So, uh, I, you know, it all became like next steps. But I remember him talking about behind the pine curtain. And um, interesting. So the search that he did for Abby statute of limitations conspiracy that would fit into that. Absolutely. And so it, it, it might be that that it was a genuine interest in the legal sort of machinations, not you know, that he was, even though he did, he expressed to his grandmother and his mom independently on different occasions, but close to his disappearance, that he was, that he was upset, that he was angered by the fact that the church and, you know, the university, the abbey would shuffle around these monks and priests who had been accused of, of misconduct and by sending them off to places like the Bahamas and so forth. And so it's possible that you know, he could have been looking at it from that angle, or it's possible that maybe it was purely a interest in the law, interest in civil procedure, or maybe it was a comp and more likely perhaps it was a combination of the two, right? Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, just how you put it. Yeah. He wanted to understand <laughs> legally and procedurally where the campus was on that, you know, would, and, would, and he was already looking ahead also. That trip, he told me he... Um, one of his professors had told him that he was going to be nominated for the Truman Scholarship, and he asked me to write a letter. So of this is on the trip. So this is I, on the back trip. Up. So this is the uh, week before his disappearance. No, at, this, is, this is on the trip to McAllister. Right, the week before his disappearance. Yeah, yeah. So you're on your. This is while you're on the trip. Josh tells you that he was doing what exactly? He was going to be. At, one of his professors had told him he would be nominated for the Truman Scholarship, and he asked if I could write a letter of recommendation for him. And so the Truman Scholarship is a scholarship that, uh, that's meant to help students who are pursuing a career in public interest work, right? Yes. I, I mean, it's a, it's a high-level, prestigious scholarship, and I was more than happy to... So tell me more about the weekend before Josh's disappearance. You, you go to McAllister, and so McAllister is a college in St. Paul. It's like an hour and a half away from St. John's, right? It is, and they picked me up. Um, I feel like me, Josh, is, Josh and Nick, and they, um, I remember like, okay, could you, you know, I'll, I work till five, you know, maybe 5.15, pick me up, and they're- This is like on a Friday or something? Yeah, yeah, because you do a round on Friday night, round Saturday morning, Saturday evening, and then around on Sunday morning, and then there are awards. I mean, it's solid. I so mean, basically you travel, so, so I, I wanna make sure we're painting yep, the picture yep. here. So you- I mean, the, and the kids are dressed in full suits. So, so they leave from St. John's on Friday afternoon. They pick you up in St. Cloud at work. Yep, downtown St. Cloud, courthouse. Great, and then you make the hour, an hour and a half drive to St. Paul, and yep. then you check in at an embassy suites, right? Yep. And that was, in fact, that was the embassy suites that Josh had called in the uh, weeks prior to his disappearance. We see it on his call logs. Um, he was arranging the hotel for the uh, the rooms that they were staying in for the for the tournament, right? Yep. And so you guys get down there. It's just very intense. Three days of yep everything, and then it it, it is, but because they were on a roll again, like they were, like their hard work had paid off. And so they were doing well. And when you have that kind of kind of momentum, so I remember Saturday evening, 
um, we were in, you know, somebody's hotel room and, you know, you're, you're laughing over the stuff that happened. Um, One of the questions I keep getting is, uh, you know, could Josh have maybe gone out after, you know, while he was in St. Paul after, you know, the mock trial stuff was done, like on Friday night or Saturday night, and maybe met someone or hooked up with someone or, you know, met up with someone that he had been talking to online kind of thing. And I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. No, I can say, honestly, that never happened. They were so, um, again, mature for their age, focused. That was not tolerated and, and neither did anybody else um, do something like that. I, I was so lucky we never had to work because if you're that kind of person, you wouldn't be doing mock trial. Again, the intense amount of work it, ta it takes to create a witness, to be, to be prepared for direct and cross-examination, to be in costume basically, mm -hmm. all of that, and then you're gonna like blow it trying to get a drink somewhere, you know, um, that, is, that wasn't them. Well, and Josh wouldn't have been able to go out and go, go to a bar or anything. I mean, he was only 19, 20, yep. 20 years old at that point, barely. And so I guess the question is, did he, maybe did he, you know, go to some, somewhere else and meet up with someone? And do you think there's any possibility at all that that could have happened? Did they have um, individual rooms? Did they share hotel no, rooms? No, uh, the, the, rooms, the rooms were shared. Do you think Josh and Nick probably? Shared, yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, anything, like, did anything specifically happen at the tournament? Any kind of fights or anything like that? No, no. Again, that one, like, where, where I think Josh and Katie had an argument of something happened like that, um, that would, had been in Iowa months before, months before November, when they were still And as we know, dating. they broke up a few months before his disappearance, too. So that makes sense. Yeah, you know, they didn't really give me a um, timeline. That's what we know, though. We, we yeah, know okay, so yeah. Okay, so then, and they did well, it sounds like? Oh, they they did really well. I mean, I, I saw there was a picture on Unsolved Mysteries of Josh holding this trophy with, with his father. I remember his father w would come. That's the other thing. The parents come. So um, they're there, you know, so... And Brian had gone to that tournament, in fact, right? Oh, yeah. I, he came to all of them, if I remember, because I remember bumping into him a lot. And so the mock trial tournament gets done on Sunday. And Yes. And then what happens next? Well, Nick and Josh dropped me off at my house. And because of that tournament, um, uh, my husband at the time had moved all... Uh, our stuff from our apartment to this house. It's my first house and I'm still in the house now, but that was the first weekend. And so I had um, that there was a Veterans Day was on Monday, which was a day off for all of the us courthouse workers. And so I was going to unpack everything, but they dropped me off on Sunday and I gave them a tour. So it was Sunday evening and it, it was still light. Um, so I gave them a tour around the house and, you know, um, uh, my empty house, you know, house with boxes and, um, Josh had worked uh, in landscaping um, with his dad, I think. That summer, and, in fact, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't even know it was that summer. Yeah. I, I thought it, it sounded like it had been like long ago, like, but I, um, I did, and he pointed out, he goes, I don't like this, and it was the grade on the side of the house, and sure enough, like years later, that he was correct, <laughs> and um, I ended up digging like a trench, at, you know, what yeah. I was supposed to do, but he could spot that right away. Josh and Nick were co-captains of the team, right? Yep. 
And, you know, they lived together on the same floor of their dorm. Yep. They were in wind ensemble together. Yep. They had political science classes together. Yeah. They had, uh, they were... They had some of the same professors and they... They studied, they studied the law school admission test together. You know, their groups, their friend groups ended up merging quite a bit. In fact, Josh, you know, or Nick has said that Josh... You know, introduced him to Katie, obviously, because Katie came to oh, yep. school with Josh. Did you notice that there was any kind of, especially on that Sunday when, when you're headed home from that tournament, did you notice any kind of tension between the two of them? Between Nick and Josh? Yeah. Absolutely not. None. Zero. Less than zero. They, they were supporters of each other wholeheartedly. One of the things on the Unsolved Mysteries episode, there was a comment, and I was really surprised to hear law enforcement tell the television show this, because I don't, as far as I'm aware, as far as Justin's aware, as far as Josh's parents are aware, no one's ever heard this before. But apparently one of Josh's roommates told law enforcement that the night before Josh's disappearance, so this would be Friday night, right, November 8th, that Josh and Nick had a fight about Katie that they overheard. Yep. And I I also have never, ever, ever during this whole entire time heard anything like that. I don't know who that roommate is. That I've just talked seemed... to, you know, Josh had five roommates. I've talked to both of the Adams. I've talked to John. The only roommate I haven't talked to is Greg. And this is not the Greg that he went to the party with that night, a different Greg. I suppose it's possible that it was it was Greg that said it, um, or it's possible that maybe one of these other three that I've talked to, you know, told law enforcement that and just didn't tell me that for some reason. Although one thing I know is that law enforcement did not didn't even interview all the roommates until 2010. There was there were some roommates, including the roommate that that people for a long time thought deleted stuff from Josh's computer because his he was the one that gave you know his login information, username and password to you know, Josh's dad and uncle to get on the computer while they were in the dorm. A lot, for a long while, people thought that, that he was the one because it was his username that had, you know, created the network account in which subsequently someone then took an internet washer to the computer. A lot of people thought it was him, right? And law enforcement didn't even interview him until, it sounds like, until 2010. Wow. Um, so, you know, um, I guess it's possible that it was one of these other roommates. But I was really surprised to hear that. And I was, it sounds like you're, you're surprised too. It sounds like you've never heard that before. Never. And, I, I, you know, and again, I, I, had, I, I saw them only for mock trial purposes. And they always seemed really, like, jovial and up with each other, you know, and I, most of all supportive of each other. And they had a mutual respect for each other. And I talked about the, um, to the producers of Unsolved Mysteries, whatever, a year ago. And what we were talking about the kind of person that Josh is and how he wasn't afraid of conflict and how he kind of almost like leaned into conflict. Whereas I feel like myself and Nick would be much more careful about leaning, you know, but, but Josh was not one of those people. Um, and so let's say, so like, yeah. So if a car of like four sketchy looking guys stops, you know, and says like, could you, we need help with this or something. 
Josh is going to be confident, draw upon all of, all of his experience as not only a top law student, <laughs> but um, landscaping and all the other life experience that he has. And he wouldn't be afraid to to join a, a group like that in, in the slightest, maybe. Um, and they were, they were on a high because th that tournament, they scored really well. He and Nick had figured out this, you know, really tight strategy on the case. So Josh and, and Nick, but they, they were like, again, on a roll, not just with mock trial. I, I had bumped into them outside the courthouse one day before the tournament, before they picked me up for that. And he had gone and maybe represented a kid from St. John's on a parking ticket, something. And they had won, they'd won their case. And they were just, you know, that's something for a 20 year old to, um, you know, they were in their mock trial in their suits. And um, so that's what I'm saying. He was super confident in those weeks before he disappeared. As I sat down to produce this episode, finalized my interview with Olga, pulled together my clips from the memorial service and thought about what I was going to say, the finality of it all sort of hit me. And again, we'll produce more episodes if there are substantial updates to this case in the future. I'm certainly not letting it go. I'll work on it in the background. But for now, at least in terms of the podcast, this is it. And it's emotional. I'm trying to help solve this case. I am trying to help get answers, not only for Josh himself, but his friends and family who, I'm, who I've come to know, that I care about, even those who I haven't come to personally know, but nonetheless can empathize with them in their, their pain, for lack of a, a better term. And there, there must be a deeper, more meaningful term to describe what they've experienced than, than simply pain. At this point, I have no doubt that Josh is missing due to foul play. And that the person or persons who were responsible for his disappearance are very likely listening to this podcast. And someone asked me last week if I was going to close out with a message to those people. And I'm not. I have nothing to say to them. But I do have a message for everyone else, and in particular those who live in central Minnesota. The reason this case is not only not yet solved, but has basically been on a 20-year dead-end road up until now is because far too few of us have been willing to step up and demand answers, to set aside our personal apathy, our personal interests, our concerns about the institutional you know, legitimacy or, or whatever that's gotten in the way of us caring about this human being, this life, and not just Josh himself, but all of those who have been affected by his disappearance. St. John's has not done nearly enough to keep Josh's case and his story in the public eye. If you're a current student or an alum at St. John's, why has your college failed to do so? If you're a staff member or faculty member there, why have you allowed them to continue the deaf with a deafening silence about Josh's case? You know, a, a statement issued by the Abbott via email once every year. I'm sorry, that's not cutting it. You can do more. You should do more. This was your student. 
If you're a taxpayer in Stearns County, if you're a resident in St. Joseph in the area, in St. Cloud, why are you not demanding, why haven't you been demanding more answers over 20 years? And by the way, this is just as much my fault. I've known about this case since at least 2006. I live in Minnesota. We all have a responsibility to demand better of these institutions and to prevent this from ever happening again. If, if we allow them to revert back to their old ways, and for St. John's, that means silence. And for Stearns County, I mean, I have a ton of respect for the current investigator assigned to this case, and I genuinely think that, that he is different from his predecessors. But there's still institutional legacy, and there's still potential for repeating the past. And so the only way that we're going to prevent that from happening is if we continue to do what has really started to happen these last few months, and we continue to demand answers. And so even though this podcast is going on a hiatus for now, and even though Unsolved Mysteries is out and done, we're not going to let up. Justin Thole is still producing that documentary. I'm still going to be working on this case in the background, and you're going to continue to provide tips to Stearns County, to us, and you're going to keep talking about Josh's case, keeping his story alive, and keeping hope alive. You can reach me at simplyvanished.com or 415-969-LOST. 415-969-5678. Thank you. I've been searching in the dark Trusting every clue I've Truth has not been told Cause every corner of these woods is hollow I can't see in the dark Where are you? Where are you? Feel that you